listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 265. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the last few decades of labor history in Los Angeles and how that built the power that we recently saw on display with a massive strike of school workers, a strike that won some very impressive gains, particularly for the lowest paid in the LA Unified School District. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Economic Hardship Reporting Project for supporting this season of Belabored. And if you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And there you can also get some free swag with your donation created by artist-activist Molly Crabapple. But first, the news. One day after May Day, writers across Hollywood went on strike. The board of directors for the Writers Guild of America voted for a walkout following the collapse of talks with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the entertainment industry group that bargains on behalf of the big studios. Basically, this means that the writers who plot out your favorite streaming series and come up with the opening jokes on late night shows and all the other entertaining scripts that we often take for granted have put down their pens as their union demands better compensation, more stable employment, and a larger share of streaming revenues. The union stated in a recent memo that many television writers are working at the industry's minimum wage and that the earnings of screenwriters have, quote, stagnated over the past four years. Their pay is often stretched out over many months and can be held hostage by producers' demands for free work, unquote. According to the Writers Guild of America, The percentage of TV series writers who are earning the industry minimum has jumped over the past decade from about 33% to about half, which means that, quote, increasing numbers of seasoned writers, including showrunners, are now paid no overscale premium for their years of experience, unquote. The union points out that writers are getting a shrinking share of Hollywood's growing pie. It writes, quote, while series budgets have soared over the past decade, median writer-producer pay has fallen, unquote. While the previous writer's strike back in 2007 focused on establishing standards for streaming revenues, this strike has focused on ongoing structural changes in the television and streaming industries and how they have undermined writers' compensation. Many are now working on shorter seasons, which leads to lower overall pay. And showrunners are stuck working longer seasons, sometimes as long as 52 weeks a year. And yet they are not covered by span protection, which is a policy that limits the length of time that the fee per episode covers. In other words, their pay is stretched over a longer production schedule, so their median weekly earnings end up being much lower than they would be with the span protection. In the backdrop are growing anxieties about technological and cultural changes in the entertainment industry. Audiences are generally shrinking in many cases, and streaming services are eclipsing traditional broadcast TV. And many writers are concerned about the role of artificial intelligence in screen and television writing. The WGA has called for regulations on, quote, the use of material produced using artificial intelligence or similar technologies. The last strike ended after 100 days. We'll see how long the writers stay off the job for this strike. It's already starting to impact television production, as late-night shows have already gone dark indefinitely. So this high-stakes drama will be unfolding in the coming days as writers square off against Hollywood moguls who keep audiences entertained at the expense of precarious scriptwriters. And hopefully, seeing their favorite shows go dark will help us in the audience become more conscious of this behind-the-scenes workforce. Teachers across England have recently joined the ongoing British strike wave, and they're facing issues that will be very familiar to belabored listeners. To tell us more about the crisis in the schools, I caught up with Manchester teacher Vic Chechi-Ribiro. 
Yeah, my name's Vic. I'm a science teacher and trade union rep in Manchester, England. So tell us how the recent strikes have gone at the schools. Today was our sixth day of strike action um, nationally since January. The strike's been really solid so far. Our union numbers will say that approximately 54% of schools have had attendance severely restricted, um, and that number increasing to 84% um, in second schools that, that you call high schools. Um, that's had a significant disruption on the economy because, as we know, people can't go to work if, if their kids are at home. So, yeah, solid action so far. So, yeah, I know you followed the school strikes in the U.S., so tell us about the issues in the schools and sort of what you're seeing that might be similar or different to what we've had over here. The big issue is around recruitment and retention. So increasingly, people aren't becoming teachers, people are leaving the profession, and that's for a variety of reasons that are similar to what you have in the US. Pay is a big issue. Um, if you work in an industry that can pay a lot more compared to doing 50, 60 hours as a school teacher, then you, you might choose the former. If I can use my own school as an example, we lost four science teachers over the Easter holidays, we weren't able to recruit one person. Normally, you, there'd be a pool of you know, people who want to become teachers. You know, we're based in Manchester, which is you know, a major city in the UK, but we've not had the number um, of applicants that we would normally do. And I saw a, a statistic that our union used a few weeks ago, like nationally, there are only 43 physics teachers doing university teacher training across the entire country. So it's not great. And if you add on to that, the cost of living crisis, the fact that teachers are finding it increasingly difficult to live month to month, you know, teachers also pay rent, they also pay mortgages, they're facing increased cost in energy, petrol and food as well. But also, you know, schools are a place where societal issues you see and we're seeing a worsening social crisis um, that are faced by families who send students to our schools. Right, exactly. You compared what's going on in the schools to what's happening in the NHS and the sort of um, collapse of public services more broadly. And what's been good is that when we've been on strike, we've tried as much as we can to link those different struggles together between like junior doctors and nurses as well. You know, it's been a real story in this country, 13 years of, of cuts and austerity, privatisation, which is then resulting in there being a staffing crisis in those public services and sort of those services, D-Strikes really brought those to the fore. Normally, you know, right-wing conservative commentators may say, well, get another job, but that's the problem. Right. Teachers and nurses are getting different jobs and leaving. You kind of have a problem if everybody in the NHS and everybody in the public schools um, gets a different job. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a little bit more, I guess, about how this is situated in the broader strike wave that's been going on for going on a year now. The strike wave sort of was initiated due to the cost of living crisis. And because there was such a big differential between inflation and annual pay awards that would be negotiated between employees and the government, no trade union general secretaries were able to call for strike action in a way that we've not seen. And previously, workers wouldn't necessarily come out for a payoff for that was 0.5%, 1% away from inflation, but 7 8% that, you know, that might create a degree of agitation so we've seen like the biggest wave strike action since 1989 
which has been positive. You now we're sort of seeing trade union leaders taking a prominent role in the media and rank of our workers sort of coming to the fore. We're seeing a, a wave of workers for the first time becoming trade union reps, holding workplace meetings, going on picket lines. The real challenge is, you know, how do we sustain that to one, winning, and two, building a longer lasting rank and file organization? Yeah. Because whilst it is true, there has been and is a strike wave, are rank and file workers in control of these disputes? I'm not so sure. You wrote a wonderful piece in Notes from Below talking about the need for rank and file engagement and expansion in the NEU particularly. No, let's let's be clear. No, disputes that we've seen this year aren't going to go away. You know, capitalism isn't going to solve its contradictions and crisis around productivity, yeah. around increasing food prices that are driven by things like the climate crisis and, and war and imperialism. Like, those things aren't going away. Within my union, National Education Union, I would say its power base is amongst its bureaucracy, so paid officers, but also an elected bureaucracy. So these are people who were teachers, but are now in elected positions, but they've not been in the workplace for many, many years. What we've seen over the last year is that absolutely, you know, reps are the ones on picket lines, but we've not yet got that political power within our trade union to sort of set set the direction of the dispute, but also hold our sort of leadership to account if, for example, they want to accept a bad deal. And that's something we've seen across the, the, the strike wave, for example, with the RCN, with, with nurses and, and others, where the leadership has tried to dampen strike action and accept a bad deal yeah. against you no know, rank and file workers. Yeah, we're seeing this, and obviously we've seen this in the US as well, this um, union leadership sort of missing how angry the rank and file are in a lot of cases. You, you can see why, because they've fundamentally got different interests to rank and file workers, and that's a story as old as time. Ultimately, who can build rank and file militancy and independence from trading leadership? It's got to be the rank and file ourselves, and there's sort of several ways we can do that. We can use disputes and struggles like this to build rank and file networks. So those reps who've been taking strike action, been in picket lines, sort of sharing, organising strategies, start discussing and formulating strike strategy. So not only do we win, but we can actually take control disputes. Things like strike bulletins have been really, really useful. So like promoting messaging and demands that you can spread across workplaces and picket lines. But as well, you know, there's a real important role that socialists can play in terms of developing that rank and file militancy because everyone can see that there are these disputes over on the surface look like just on pay. But no, the role of, of activists in trade unions is to sort of connect the issues of the workplace to the wider economic system. Right. And that's got a real key role, I think, in terms of politicising these disputes in a way where those rapid file workers don't just become active during a single dispute, but actually think, well, actually, no, we should be the ones running our trade unions in the same way that we should be running our own workplaces and indeed society. What's next, I guess, for the NEU and for the broader strike wave? So currently, we've We've been the only union out on strike, so we're the biggest one, but the other teaching unions didn't manage to 
across the voter turnout that was needed to, to legally take strike action. So we've been carrying this dispute. The other teacher unions have now committed to rebalancing again this school term, which is really, really positive. So what we need to do is to make sure that those other unions win those ballots. So in schools, we just see committees containing different trade unions working together and then use this dispute to to build those rank and file networks and to build the power of, of rank and file network because we can win. I'm not sure how much appetite there is from the government to have this dispute rumble on towards an election year. But we've got to make sure that we do win. That's, that's got to come from us. We, we can't leave it to the leadership. We can't think that this dispute we won on PR or seem respectable. It's got to be done by building maximum leverage possible that's capable of closing and keeping shut as many schools as possible. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? Wherever you are as, as a worker, no, this is a real time to start speaking to each other. And even if, well, particularly if you're in a workplace that isn't unionized, no, start thinking, how do I build agency in my own workplace and start taking control back? Because there's some big questions being posed during the strike wave. You know, where does power lie in the workplace and, and indeed society? You know, now's the time to really start building power, power amongst our class. That was Vic Chechi Ribeiro, and we will put a link to his article and more about the strike up at the Descent website or in the show notes available wherever you're listening to this podcast. The issue of caste discrimination is often hidden below the surface in many communities, particularly South Asian diaspora communities in which caste identity still often determines one's social and economic opportunities. That may be changing in California, where a landmark bill to bar caste discrimination just won approval from the state Senate Judiciary Committee. SB 403 would designate caste as a protected category under California state law, which means that the legal remedies available to victims of other forms of discrimination, such as on the basis of race, ethnicity, or religion, would also cover people who have experienced caste discrimination. The legislation, introduced by State Senator Aisha Wahab, would build on initiatives to address caste discrimination at the institutional level, particularly anti-caste discrimination policies in the California Democratic Party, the California State University System, the Alphabet Workers Union at Google, and corporations like Apple and Cisco. Seattle became the first city outside of South Asia to ban caste discrimination last February, with legislation spearheaded by socialist city council member Kashama Zawant. The discrimination faced by immigrants on the basis of caste background takes many forms, ranging from being socially shunned by other community members to being denied employment or promotion opportunities due to being perceived as coming from a lower caste. The issue garnered media attention in the U.S. with a 2020 lawsuit brought against Cisco Systems by an engineer from a Dalit background who claimed that he suffered discriminatory treatment in terms of income and work opportunities when he worked as part of a team comprised mostly of upper-caste Indian immigrants. I spoke with Karthikeyan Shanmugam of the South Asian-led advocacy network, the Ambedkar King Study Circle, about the implications of the legislation and why caste discrimination persists in the U.S., so last month, uh, Senator Aisha Wahab introduced the uh, Senate Bill SB 403 that uh, bans caste-based discrimination in, in the state of California. So it is an important civil right bill which enables the um, 
caste oppressed people predominantly from the south asia to to exercise their civil rights in fully so this bill aims to ban caste based discrimination which we we the um, we see it is predominantly manifested as a social exclusion or the workplace uh, discrimination in terms of denial of opportunity and also outing of caste with an intention to discriminate people and this bill is very important because the existing existing protected category there are some gray area how how the caste based discrimination is addressed which is which we have seen in the cisco caste discrimination case where the cisco hr claims even there is a substantial evidence for the caste based discrimination hr told that caste discrimination is not unlawful then it's all the way went to the court and now it is still in the california courts having this is going on one side on the other hand that there is a general consciousness among the people about the caste based discrimination predominantly the testimonies collected by ambedkar king study circle followed by the cisco case and different people then recently based on all this happening the seattle city banned the caste based discrimination provided uh, which is introduced by the seattle city councilor council member shama shamant introduced this ordinance and and that is ordinance is first historic ordinance outside the india to ban caste discrimination so now this this bill what is introduced by aisha wahab it will protect really protect the uh, oppressed in the us those who are very vulnerable so because the so called upper caste people those who practice caste is is very able to able to hide the, such a practice in the um, in the guise of it's a, just a cultural practice or the caste is a, just a division it's not a discrimination but that is no more be the case so it has started a wide widespread conversation and and finally what we are seen very encouraging is the judiciary committee which has passed the which voted in favor of the sb403 unanimously so the such a bipartisan approach is very promising at this moment and so in the california legislature how close is the bill to passage right now sure that's a long way to go Uh, it has been ordered in the judiciary committee then it has to it, it will go through senate assembly and all the way up to a governor's signature to to be enacted as law and in each each legislative step we see that the pro caste people will create all the hurdle so the anti caste people have to be successful in each step and it's a long way to go and and a lot of work needed in order to carry out the work especially especially there is an different alliances are working one is the um, which ambedkar king study circle is part of the alliance called america against caste discrimination which is the alliance of around 15 plus organization and also there are another caste equity coalition also in california and, and all of us are working in tandem to make this one successful and what we see could be the argument from the hindutva or the pro caste people those who uh, brush aside the caste discrimination is through some blatant lies and false narration how the caste is being practiced either it is saying it is the interference in their religious rights or caste is a thing of past it is not here but there are many substantial evidence it is here and even we, there are social media 
we are seeing a lot of advertisements about there are some practices very exclusive for for the so-called upper caste and also a lot of upper caste based organizations in america and once it becomes um, law and, and we are progressing so many people we are expecting to come out and boldly say that they are facing caste as a hurdle in their path to success other uh, south asian diaspora communities affected by this or is it primarily indian americans predominantly indian americans what um, because the ambedkar king study circle is working among them but there are the for example take the cal state when it uh, protected the caste and in, included caste in the protected category that very initiative itself came from a nepali oppressed caste person and once all this discussion starts and they have some legal immunity the really all the discrimination will come out that is a major hurdle because since they don't have the immunity and also the preponderance presence of the so called upper caste in 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 every sphere of social political and economical that's very difficult to come out with that there is a very minimal legal immunity these people will come forward and um, really share their stories can you talk about how um enforcement uh, will be carried out uh, if this legislation comes into place or perhaps it seems like this would be something very challenging to enforce on sort of a workplace level or an institutional level so cisco case is a very good example so when the cisco it unfolded the cisco hr is not able to uh, recognize it is a caste based discrimination so once it's become a law that what uh, we expect the government agencies and the and the corporates will train their hr on how the caste based discrimination will look like for example outing of somebody's caste with an caste with an intention to discriminate that is what exactly happened in the cisco case the cisco case the victim's caste was outed with an intention to discriminate and right now the cisco and apple has included the caste in the protected category so they should have already started employing some methods in training their own workforce perhaps using the presentation or the q and a and all this then so far whatever is nuanced as a as a cultural practice which is inherently a caste based discrimination the people will come to know then their people will get sensitized on this one and and they will they will not indulge in any discrimination that's what the mainly the public education has to be there you're talking about how the public conversation around caste in the US has changed recently and i was wondering if your organization thinks about how this issue will continue into the future do you think that with public education this is something that might be fully addressed or at least mostly addressed within say a generation do you see this as a much longer process of changing cultural norms the law law and enforcement will work uh, will be enforced only when when there is a blatant violation and um, very discrimination but with the cost which is injected into the minds of the especially the immigrants those who are coming from india definitely there is a hope of the second generation those who are not injected into the caste consciousness in their every day to day life but definitely until the immigrations are flooding into the us they will have the caste conscious and it is not possible to get away with that then that needs a deeper social and cultural work but as far as the legal remedy is concerned it definitely it is going to enable a lot of the caste oppressed people to explore their full potential without fear of being oppressed or discriminated 
So once it is started, then um, I will tell one example that when Ambedkar King Study Circle passed a resolution in last conference saying whenever there is a function taking place in the workplaces or or in the public places, make the make the food inclusive, ir- irrespective of the function that you are celebrating. For example, the Diwali when the Diwali function is celebrated in in companies, that make the food I- inclusive. Then the Hindutva forces reacted saying that this is anti-Hindu. Even if you look at the resolution, there is not single word called Hindu in it. The resolution said make the food inclusive. So this is how. they are completely advancing their casteist narration what we call the fast uh, false narration so once that will uh, get challenged then uh, it will lead to the way the people get educated about it and also the people those who are practicing caste in the us are able to practice very freely with the assumption that they have an organizational support or the platform which which protect them um, is the hindutva forces that's what happened in cisco case also the cisco case even the person those who are, who was a victim of the caste discrimination even he is an hindu that all the hindutva organizations are not supporting that person who is practicing hindu but uh, defenders uh, who testified that they are not practicing hinduism at all and until and unless the hindutva platform has to be exposed that the the practice of caste will continue uh, is there anything else you want to add either about the legislation or other campaigns no yeah so for the sb403 it's a it's a major bill which unleashed the potential of many oppressed caste people in the us uh, meanwhile today uh, there is a news uh, is out that the retrogressive forces the republican party some of the republican party members are trying to initiate a recall against um, senator ms aisha war that who not only introduced a progressive bill of uh, sb403 but also the other bills of making the people more responsible and accountable in the political process by saying that somebody who hold the public office uh, should not turn a lobbyist after only they should should be able to do after 2 years of gap after they leave the office and also that her um, very pro women and uh, bill which uh, regulate the ma- marriage between a minor and a non minor and she's attacked for that so there are a lot of uh, legislative activism and and uh, progress is going all the progressive people have to defend all this very progressive legislative and they all have to come together against this opposition. That was Karthikeyan Shanmugam of the Ambedkar King Study Circle. There's been a lot of hype for decades, basically, about whether robots are coming for our jobs. Hype that's gone into overdrive recently with the introduction of ChatGPT and other AI that essentially scrape the internet for data, writing, or art and feed it back to us in recombined form. It's always worth remembering that as artist, writer and friend of the show Molly Crabapple, whose beautiful human-made art you can get as a Patreon perk if you subscribe, though I swear that's not the only reason I'm quoting her here. She puts it, quote, "Generative AI is vampirical, feasting on past generations of artwork even as it sucks the lifeblood from living artists." And quote, what she's saying in this paraphrase of Marx 
is that this program, which is neither artificial nor intelligent, can only generate profits for its owners based on the labor of many, many working people that it collects and draws from. And lest we let this invisible commodity get too fetishized, some of the workers behind ChatGPT, as well as TikTok and Facebook and other supposedly artificial intelligences, are unionizing. Billy Perigo at Time, who's been covering these workers for a while, writes, quote, More than 150 workers whose labor underpins the AI systems of Facebook, TikTok, and ChatGPT gathered in Nairobi on Monday and pledged to establish the first African Content Moderators Union in a move that could have significant consequences for the businesses of some of the world's biggest tech companies. The workers are employed by outsourcing companies in Africa, but provide major services for major companies based in the U.S. and elsewhere, Meta, ByteDance, and OpenAI, which are the owners of Facebook, TikTok, and ChatGPT, respectively. These workers are paid sometimes as little as $1.50 in U.S. dollars per hour, despite doing draining, difficult, and invisibilized work. Perigo continues, quote, The establishment of the Content Moderators Union is the culmination of a process that began in 2019 when Daniel Motuang, a Facebook content moderator, was fired from his role at the outsourcing company Sama after he attempted to convene a workers' union called the Alliance. Motuang, whose story was first revealed by Time, is now suing both Facebook and Sama in a Nairobi court. Motuang traveled from his home in South Africa to attend the Labor Day meeting of more than 150 content moderators in Nairobi and addressed the group. I never thought when I started the Alliance in 2019 we would be here today, with moderators from every major social media giant forming the first African moderators union, Motuang said in a statement. There have never been more of us. Our cause is right, our way is just, and we shall prevail. I couldn't be more proud of today's decision to register the Content Moderators Union. And importantly, considering the writer's strike you heard about from Michelle on today's show, the workers who helped make ChatGPT, well, less likely to burst out in profanity or serve you videos of beheadings are also involved here. Richard Mathenga, a former ChatGPT content moderator who worked on Sama's contract with OpenAI through 2022, told Perigo, quote, For too long, we, the workers powering the AI revolution, were treated as different and less than moderators. Our work is just as important and it is also dangerous. We took an historic step today. The way is long, but we are determined to fight on so that people are not abused the way we were. OpenAI, if the hype train continues, is on track to raise billions of dollars and potentially become one of the world's most valuable AI companies. Yet all that money relied actually on the intelligence of those Kenyan workers, paid less than $2 an hour. Perigo wrote in an earlier article, quote, ChatGPT's predecessor, GPT-3, had already shown an impressive ability to string sentences together. But it was a difficult sell as the app was also prone to blurting out violent, sexist, and racist remarks. This is because the AI had been trained on hundreds of billions of words scraped from the internet, a vast repository of human language. That huge training dataset was the reason for GPT-3's impressive linguistic capabilities, but was also perhaps its biggest curse. Since part of the internet are replete with toxicity and bias, there was no easy way of purging those sections of the training data. Even a team of hundreds of humans would have taken decades to trawl through the enormous dataset manually. It was only by building an additional AI-powered safety mechanism that OpenAI would be able to rein in that harm, producing a chatbot suitable for everyday use." End quote. In other words, the machine can't actually make a value judgment between horribly racist or violent content and anything else on the internet. Only humans can do that. 
And so those humans had to sit through mountains of horrific stuff in order to teach the machines not to replicate it. And so, all solidarity to the workers of the African Content Moderators Union, the Writers Guild, and to all of us trying to make a living from words and pictures in a world that seems increasingly inspired to make humans ourselves obsolete. And remember, next time you're wondering if your chatbot is sentient, all the human labor being obscured by the premise of artificial intelligence. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Almost exactly 31 years ago, Los Angeles was burning. Several days of civil unrest erupted in the wake of the acquittal of the police officers who had brutally beaten Rodney King. But it was not just an impulsive uprising fueled by rage at police brutality. The turmoil unleashed by the Rodney King case was a reflection of many years, if not decades, of a slow-burning urban crisis in which social disinvestment, deindustrialization, and deep segregation had turned the city into a highly economically and racially polarized landscape with the police serving as chief enforcers of a brutal social hierarchy. In this episode, we will talk about working-class Los Angeles before and after 1992 and how the city's labor movement reflects and grapples with the scars of historical injustice. We revisit the events of 92 with Tobias Higby, Associate Director of the UCLA Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, and Kent Wong, director of the UCLA Labor Center, to discuss how the city's structural inequities continue to shape its labor struggles in many sectors, from the classrooms to the docks. And before we begin, I just want to apologize in advance for my raspy voice. I lost my voice that week. And I want to give a little background for this conversation. Kent and Toby refer to a recent scandal involving the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, in which a secret recording of a conversation with racist remarks was exposed and triggered the resignation of Ron Herrera, president of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, along with three Los Angeles City Council members. And now we start with Kent Wong, reflecting on how the events of 1992 still shape the present. A lot of us who weren't there in person understand the civil unrest of 1992 as kind of a spontaneous response to the acquittal of the police officers who attacked Rodney King and more broadly as kind of a symbol of the type of despair and I guess urban crisis that was roiling in Los Angeles at the time, particularly around its Black community. But Obviously, the city was socially and economically troubled in a lot of ways uh, that the news coverage has often missed right at the time and also even today. And so uh, maybe you two could offer some historical perspective on some of the social factors that were disrupting working class communities in Los Angeles in the years leading up to the events of 1992. This is Kent Wong, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Toby Higby, who is a labor historian here at UCLA. I work as the director of the UCLA Labor Center, and I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And I'm very aware of the social and economic conditions that set the foundation for the civil unrest of 1992. We have tremendous economic and racial disparity here in Los Angeles of all major cities in the country Los Angeles has the greatest disparity between rich and poor, and the economic disparity is also matched by racial disparity, where communities of color uh, occupy the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. 
I was actually in Washington, D.C. Uh, when the verdict of the Rodney King case was announced. And I was chairing the founding convention of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. So here I'm in D.C. with 500 Asian American labor activists, and we were so traumatized by seeing the national coverage of the city of Los Angeles, my hometown, erupting in flames. Even at this convention, we decided that we needed to make a statement. And so we organized a march on the U.S. Justice Department to push for a civil rights prosecution of the police involved in the beating of Rodney King, demanding justice for Rodney King, and demanding the firing of then LAPD Police Chief Darrell Gates. This was quite an important statement for 500 Asian American labor activists to stand in solidarity with Rodney King, to stand in solidarity with the Black community against police brutality. But although Rodney King's trial verdict was the flashpoint for the civil unrest, the horrendous economic and racial disparities were the underlying cause that had been in the works for decades. And just to follow up on that, I mean, you know, obviously one of the sort of sub-narratives of of the civil unrest at the time was about this sort of Black Asian tension, right? And particularly around Korean-owned businesses. And why did you think it was important sort of as an Asian American organization to sort of make that intervention at the time? Like, what was your understanding of how that narrative was playing out in the mainstream media? We were very disturbed about the narrative in the mainstream media, which focused on the tension and conflict between the Black community and the Korean community, uh, when in fact you had two groups of low-wage, marginalized communities that were being pitted against one another and uh, where the broader class and racial injustice issues were not adequately addressed. And so that's why we thought it was very important at the founding convention of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance to put issues of racial and economic justice front and center and to advance a notion that multiracial unity and demanding economic justice, demanding police accountability, demanding a reeling in of corporate greed were things that were fundamental in advancing a labor and social justice movement in Los Angeles. Toby Higby, I'm a historian at UCLA. And to add to what Kent's saying, the 20 years previous to the civil unrest, Los Angeles had undergone an, a remarkable and remarkably negative industrial transformation. Lots of cities in the United States experienced plant closures and, and job loss. It was particularly intensive in Los Angeles. You know, we don't think of LA as, as an industrial city, I think, often because it's tourist and Hollywood image presents an image of leisure, but there were major manufacturing facilities here, General Motors, Ford, all the uh, major automobile companies, steel makers, tire and rubber plant. And most of those, especially the largest national corporations were unionized, highly unionized with great, you know, relatively good pay and benefits that stabilized middle-class communities. Beginning in the mid-1970s, those plants started to shut down as capital was moving out of Southern California 
sometimes to low-wage parts of the United States, sometimes to Mexico, sometimes to Asia, and particularly in the period from 1978 through 88, those 10 years, thousands and thousands of jobs were lost in Los Angeles. And because LA remains, but at that time was especially a highly segregated city, it really mattered where the plants were shutting down. So there were major unionized employers closing down in the heart of the African-American community in South Central LA, uh, General Motors, Southgate, Firestone, Goodyear, other steel plants, et cetera, which just meant that the opportunity for people to make a living was disappearing. Those jobs were being either not replaced, so high levels of unemployment, or being replaced by low-wage and exploitive non-union industrial and service jobs. There was, at the same time, a pretty significant wave of immigration coming, especially from Latin America, and an intensification of policing associated with the drug war. So those sorts of combinations of things were uh, particularly pronounced here in Los Angeles. When we talk about deindustrialization in Los Angeles, I mean, that was a trend that was happening in cities across the country at the time. Also, it was sort of accompanied by many years of kind of social disinvestment, various neoliberal social policies, and cross currents of economic globalization that also probably added to a lot of the uh, growing inequality at the time. Can you talk about how the new ways of migration, as well as perhaps the kind of solidification of urban poverty and concentrated urban poverty in Black communities. How was that kind of a response to all of these urban changes that were happening? And, and did the city <laughs> do anything to try to try to uh, intervene in that? I mean, a lot of what the city did was intensified policing, which made the matters uh, worse and the communities obviously organized to try to respond to that. It, it's not that, uh, you know, immigrants came and lowered the wages of American workers. A lot of immigrants came and also were being hired on in unionized jobs or began unionizing themselves even in the 1970s. You know, along with capital flight came a newly emboldened employer approach to unionization. So it got much more difficult to unionize industrial plants and the, the employers would fire workers and resist unionization the way they do today. But at the time, they were really beginning to test the waters of the kinds of anti-union policies that are really typical today. Things like dragging out the process of the election and filing perfluous and ridiculous complaints about the NLRB process, etc. So you would have elections that would carry on, election processes would carry on for years and years. And then in the midst of that, the Immigration and Naturalization Service often would come into the workshops arresting people who were union supporters, who were also immigrants and deporting them across the border, even on the very day of union election. You know, it's a combination of capital flight and a kind of police response to uh, labor discipline that was uh, the one-two punch of the period. I think many people think about policing as a matter of public security, right? Los Angeles Police Department, as well as, you know, here in New York, the, the NYPD, the way that they're sort of perceived by the public, I think, speaks a lot to the police, not simply as a force for fighting crime, but one of enforcing a certain social hierarchy. Can you talk about how urban life was shaped by the presence of 
law enforcement and the criminal legal system and how working class life was was impacted by that, not just in terms of basic sort of landscape of public safety for people, but how it affected people's stability and sense of security in other arenas of life. The Los Angeles Police Department had a long history of abusive practices that in particular targeted black and brown communities of Los Angeles, and that the beating of Rodney King was extraordinary only in the sense that it was captured on videotape. But in terms of that dynamic and that experience, it was very much something that was a common occurrence for black and brown young men here in Los Angeles. And what was so telling about the 1992 civil unrest is that after the burning began, after the massive property destruction, loss of human life, all of the targeted burning and violence that occurred in the streets of Los Angeles, the LA police department completely abandoned the South and South Central area and stationed these barriers and blockades to protect the white and affluent neighborhood. So this was really a wake-up call, especially to the Korean immigrant community who had less experience and grounding in the history of the LAPD with regard to its treatment of communities of color, but were just shocked that those that were supposed to be protecting and serving the people abandoned these neighborhoods and instead set up blockades to protect Beverly Hills, to protect Bel Air, to protect Santa Monica, and basically allowed the burning to take place without interference. It's an incredibly segregated city where the, the freeways operate as kind of barriers, uh, especially at that time between the South and the North. So much of Los Angeles is structured around its class and racial geography. Even before the televised beating of Rodney King, you had the very same LA Police Department beating hundreds of protesting janitors who were organizing for a living wage. Peaceful, protesting janitors and their supporters. You had women and children. You had a very spirited, very peaceful march. And the LAPD took out their batons, sent 50 peaceful protesters to the hospital, yet arrested some of the leaders of the uh, peaceful march and tried to blame them. Uh, this ultimately resulted in a multi-million dollar settlement against the LAPD, which was uh, successfully brought by the Justice for Janitors Union. But uh, the timing of the beating of the Justice for Janitors on June 15th, 1990, and the subsequent beating of Rodney King uh, reflected, once again, the class and racial bias of the LA Police Department. Yeah. And how would you say the LAPD, well, I guess like Los Angeles has a lot of different police forces, but I guess the LAPD is the most iconic one. How would you say uh, the LAPD operates today compared to mm -hmm. 30 years ago? I mean, uh, certainly, you know, many of the same problems probably still persist. One thing I would say to think about is how the sheriff remains 
a really potentially detrimental force within the county. And, you know, there's large parts of the county that are unincorporated that the sheriff patrols, or there are smaller cities within the county that the sheriff patrols. And we just had a, a complex period with the, the sheriff who was just voted out of office, who kind of portrayed himself as a reformer, came in as the champion of actual gangs within the sheriff's de departments among the deputies who purportedly, you know, exploit and extort the people. So the county is is vast and um, the city itself is quite large, too, and has all these different pockets in it. So some of this is about policing the geography of the city in, in order to protect, you know, the richest. And just to add to that, you would have hoped that after the national and international attention generated by the uh, beating of the janitors on June 15, 1990, after the televised beating of Rodney King and the civil unrest of 1992, that there would have been uh, massive improvements with the LAPD. And unfortunately, that is not the case. In 2007, there was yet another police riot on May Day, on May 1st, when you had a peaceful protest, once again, with women, men, and children. You had journalists, you had religious leaders, you had labor leaders. And in a completely unprovoked way, the LAPD had a riot and started not only beating the peaceful protesters, firing rubber bullets into the crowd, yet they also were beating up uh, journalists. <laughs> they, were, they were beating up TV news reporters for filming, you know, the police riot. And uh, most recently, during the largely peaceful Black Lives Matter protest, uh, once again, we had excessive force used by the LAPD. And as Toby indicated, the LAPD excesses are only worse if you look at the practices of the LA sheriffs who have documented instances of white supremacist gangs uh, in their midst. And yet, you know, uh, all of this has been never addressed. And so the critical issue is that the excessive force by the police and the sheriffs, uh, racial profiling, the abuse of black and brown communities is also coupled with, you know, consistent hostility, especially to uh, protesting workers uh, when those workers are predominantly workers of color. Both of you mentioned the role of police in enforcing social divisions as well as the geography of the city. So I, I guess here would be a good segue to mention the iconic examination of postmodern Los Angeles that a lot of academics certainly cite by Mike Davis and the way uh, City of Courts kind of explores the physical landscape of Los Angeles and the way race and class are sort of configured and manipulated through that landscape by the state and also by, by capital. Obviously, it came out before 1992, but can you reflect on how the geography of the city maybe has, has evolved uh, since that time? And do the same types of divisions play out even if, you know, we're living in a sort of a hyper-technologized society now where you would think that divisions between neighborhoods might be dissolved somewhat by that? Kent, you want to... Divisions have not dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Los Angeles has some of the wealthiest 
individuals, the wealthiest corporations in the world. Uh, and you have conditions that rival uh, the poorest parts of the developing world. You have neighborhoods in Los Angeles where you have gated communities and every single home is worth millions of dollars. Uh, you have a situation where the wealthy have only dramatically increased uh, their wealth during the last few years. During the pandemic, we have seen economic and racial justice dramatically increasing. For all of the focus on essential workers who put their lives on the line during the pandemic, they have been completely abused, underpaid, undersupported. Uh, basic health and safety provisions were not respected uh, based on corporate greed. And you had a dramatic increase in corporate power and wealth and um, individual wealth. And obviously there's a relationship, like Davis was pointing out in his book, you know, between the wealth of the wealthiest and the poverty of the poorest. The city has been reconfigured to a certain extent in the last 40 years, and especially in the last 20 years. But the disinvestment that began, you know, had really shaped a lot of the trajectories of the neighborhoods so that the underinvested neighborhoods were the target of predatory home purchasing by um, investment corporations that come in and buy up single family homes that are distressed. And then in the wake of the, the financial crisis, then they can rent those out and sit on those properties as the property values increase. The tax structure for property is completely unequal um, thanks to Proposition 13 of 1979. And, um, you know, the What's happening right now is that we have a crisis of, of housing, of affordable housing, so that many people, tens of thousands of people are living outside for at least part of their of the year. It's been very difficult for the city to find the resources to address that, to find places for, for people to live. Meanwhile, rents, and housing prices, even in now, those less invested in neighborhoods are rising way beyond what workers can make. Although the city has changed a lot and different neighborhoods you know, have developed, the inequality that Mike Davis was identifying is still very much present and still very much inscribed across the, the space. Can you talk about how the demographics of the city have changed since uh, 1992, and how has that affected the types of labor struggles and social struggles that have played out more recently? I, Los Angeles has has seen a decline in the Black population and a growth in the populations of people from Latin America and, and also from Asia and their communities. And has that affected either the, the types of the types of struggles that play out or, or has it affected kind of the... Uh, the ethnopolitics of Los Angeles. So I do think that it's significant that we are talking about the 1992 civil unrest because the late 80s and early 1990s uh, represented a dramatic shift in the revitalization of the Los Angeles labor movement. And through breakthrough organizing campaigns led by the Justice for Janitors, led by the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union, uh, led by the home care 
uh, workers, uh, you saw increasing numbers of immigrant workers, workers of color forming and joining unions. Uh, you saw the emergence of very powerful campaigns that galvanized and mobilized thousands and thousands of workers demanding a living wage, demanding better health conditions, better job standards. And uh, you also had an expansion of community-based organizing. Our current mayor, Karen Bass, launched the Community Coalition in South Los Angeles in response to the drug crisis, in response to the massive disinvestment in uh, South Los Angeles, and built dynamic multiracial coalitions to advance racial and economic justice in some of the poorest neighborhoods. There was such a dramatic campaign just this past November uh, between a billionaire land developer uh, who outspent Karen Bass 11 to 1 and who uh, made his fortune on the gentrification of Los Angeles and in lining the pockets of some of the wealthiest corporations and individuals, uh, while at the same time contributing to the rise in homelessness. And although uh, Karen Bass was outspent 11 to 1 through a dynamic labor and community alliance, uh, she emerged as the very first woman mayor in 241-year history of Los Angeles and the first woman of color. So I do think that if you look back to the seeds of laboring community organizing all the way back in 1992, that they have yielded significant results in advancing dynamic labor and community coalitions around economic and racial justice. You know, and, and that's, you know, these were already predominantly immigrant workforces and the campaigns, even at that time, were lifting up these broader issues of inequality across the city. So they were, they were, of course, union campaigns to win contracts for specific workers and improvements for those workers. But they raised the question of why doesn't the city work for everyone? Uh, why is it that the building owners and developers are able to take the benefit of everything and we're, we're left with nothing? Early efforts of the hotel workers also led to the creation of the LA Alliance for a New Economy, which was a dynamic organization that uh, developed research and action campaigns like the living wage campaign in LA during the mid-1990s, which was one of many living wage campaigns all across the United States, trying to leverage workers' power in municipal government to raise wages, not just for union members, but for uh, all workers across the city. So those kinds of things, living wage, uh, community development benefits arrangements, which were an effort to try to hem in uh, the, the, the uh, freedom of, in some sense of developers to do whatever they wanted and to, to extract whatever value they wanted, forcing developers to give back to the communities. Those were things that emerged out of this period when it was very clear that the city was not functioning as it should. It was not delivering the kind of life that most of its residents needed. And the unions or subset of, of the organized labor movement really took it upon themselves to advance these more general demands that today, you know, we would, we would 
put under the label bargaining for the public good. In terms of local politics, and I was just thinking about like the the whole scandal around like the city council resignations last year. And I think the, was it the LA County Labor Federation head who also resigned? Was that just like sort of, does that reflect anything about how urban politics plays out and how it can be quite fraught even with respect to the labor movement? What is interesting is that uh, there has been major uh, demographic shifts in Los Angeles for many years. Los Angeles has the largest concentration of Central Americans in the country. We have the largest Asian American and Pacific Islander community in the country. We have diverse groups of immigrants from uh, more than 50 countries here in Los Angeles. We have a declining African-American population uh, in part because of the black job crisis, uh, the lack of affordable housing, and the existing white supremacy and uh, anti-blackness reflected in a massive disinvestment in inner city and communities of color. The emergence of racial tension and racial conflict, while it is part of the social landscape here in Los Angeles, there is also tremendous multiracial organizing, multiracial unity. And what you said is true that after the recording of three members of the city council at the headquarters of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, uh, it triggered the resignation of the president of the LA City Council. It triggered the resignation of the head of the LA County Federation of Labor. But to labor's credit, within weeks, uh, labor rallied together and unanimously elected the very first black woman, Yvonne Wheeler, uh, to lead the 800,000 plus union members of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor. Uh, in the midst of the scandal, within weeks, uh, labor mobilized uh, tremendous support to elect Karen Bass as the first black woman mayor of Los Angeles and Rex Richardson as the first black mayor of the city of Long Beach. You both mentioned the Justice for Janitors campaign. I think it's another anniversary coming up for that in June. That was seen of course, is a turning point for labor organizing, not just in Los Angeles, but in cities across the country. What is it like organizing in low-wage service industries today? I know that your labor center recently put out a, a report on sort of the state of janitorial workers in Los Angeles. Do you wonder why there maybe hasn't been more progress or, or perhaps, you know, what is, what is the work that still has left to be done? I think there has been significant progress. So, uh, the Justice for Janitors campaign and the hotel and uh, restaurant workers organizing represented a national breakthrough in organizing uh, immigrant workers, many undocumented immigrant workers, and challenged the myth that was dominant uh, within major unions that immigrant workers couldn't be organized. Uh, so the victory of the hotel workers, the victory of the janitors union brought about a whole new wave of successful immigrant worker organizing throughout the state of California and throughout the country. The home care organizing that initiated right here in Los Angeles resulted in 74,000 home care workers who were successfully organized in 1999. 
Today, there are more than a half a million home care workers under union contract in the state of California. This represents the single largest union organizing victory in the country in more than 50 years. And even in the last few months, we had a very successful strike led by predominantly women workers of color uh, within the Los Angeles Unified School District, represented by SEIU Local 99, who aligned with the United Teachers of Los Angeles and won a 30% wage increase for the 30,000 blue-collar workers within the LA Unified School District. Just a few months ago, the largest single strike in the history of higher education at the 10-campus University of California system resulted in a 46% wage increase for graduate student workers throughout the state of California within the University of California system and led by 48,000 graduate student workers. So these are uh, very powerful signs that labor's resurgence is part and parcel of a broader social justice movement uh, for uh, racial and economic justice. You know, the, the episode with the city council members and the head of the County Federation of Labor was really seen as a betrayal by so many Democratic voters, labor union members, activists that, um, as Kent said, you know, we've been moving in this direction towards building a multiracial movement and advancing racial and gender equity in the city. And it's a constant struggle. You know, the movements have to be uh, aware and organizing uh, all the time. I do think Karen Bass's victory, handy victory, I would say, quite clear victory, is a sign that, um, you know, most people in the city do understand what's going on and they want somebody who's going to move the uh, situation forward. Another sort of recent development in Los Angeles's labor universe was the strike by school workers. And that was met with solidarity from, from teachers as well. And teachers went on strike a few years ago. What do those education labor struggles suggest about um, both you know, the plight of public workers in Los Angeles and also how the struggles of workers in schools kind of reflects a broader crisis in the community around public education and how it's valued. The strikes by the uh, United Teachers Los Angeles and SEIU more recently, you know, they reflect, again, the disinvestment uh, in the public sector and the desire for public workers and school children and parents, you know, for improvements. I think that the LA Unified School District has just been so bled dry of resources. And like other big city school districts, it faced a very well coordinated uh, charter school effort to draw additional funds away from the public schools into privatized and semi-privatized uh, schools. Those charter schools are not going to pay their service workers and teachers well. You can be sure of that because that's the whole point behind charterization and privatization. For the most part, although not completely, I would say the, the, the parents uh, and the teachers of Los Angeles, the school workers have, have pushed back successfully against charterization. 
And now what we're seeing, though, is still amongst public sector managers in K-12, but also in higher education, a mindset from an older period in which they feel like they could just drag these negotiations out for very long periods of time. The school service workers who just went on strike with support of teachers had been working without a contract for a number of years. Um, this contract could have been solved a long time ago, but the, the district obviously thought that they could, you know, wait it out, that they could force a contract on the workers and that the workers wouldn't strike. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now with the, you know, increased strike activity across the public sector is a, a, a change of mindset amongst workers that uh, they're not really interested in waiting anymore. So that's true of Los Angeles. I think it's true um, probably more broadly across the country, but we certainly have been seeing that in LA. And I would say one of the dynamics that's pretty interesting about these, especially the K-12 strikes, and I, I'll think back to the teacher strike a few years back. I My kids were in high school at the time. Uh, I am quite sure that the uh, school administration and, and the city political elite expected parents to turn on the teachers union when they went out on strike. And instead, the parents turned out to the picket line. Every day, there were picket lines at schools all across Los Angeles. And so getting back to that geographic division, you just never see that. You don't see crowds of people protesting uh, in neighborhoods. And all of a sudden, there's protests in neighborhoods all across the city. Then everybody goes downtown at the middle of the day and protests there and comes back to the picket line in the community in the afternoon. The same thing happened in the recent service employee strike. And that process of making uh, the struggle more visible, that was actually a big part of the janitors uh, and hotel workers campaigns of the 1990s. The janitors kind of became famous for having these big protests with everybody wearing red t-shirts and marching up and down the streets so that they became a visual representation of the invisible work that, that makes Los Angeles continue. And this is a city that is really based on making work invisible so that the Hollywood view of Los Angeles can be seen. And that's what those protests do. They, they, they bring it out into the open so it can't be unseen anymore. So I think that's, that's a dynamic that's really starting to shift the way people think about work and the, you know, the politics of, of work as well. I agree with everything that Toby raised. Uh, just to bring it down to a very personal level. Uh, I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. And uh, when I went to uh, public schools, California had the finest public school system in the country, bar none. We were number one in the country in per pupil funding. And with the passage of Proposition 13, uh, we have seen a massive redistribution of the wealth and we have seen massive profits from the largest land owners in the state of California, which are the corporations, of course, and a gutting of funding of the public schools. So now the California public school system is competing with states like Alabama and Mississippi 
uh, in per pupil funding, uh, which is a disgrace. Uh, in the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, California deserves better. And what we have seen with the emergence of a string of organizing and strikes led by teachers and education workers is dramatic. And the six-day strike led by UTLA back in 2019, as Toby said, uh, inspired tremendous public support because people understood that the teachers were fighting for quality public education. And the resounding support for the 30,000 blue-collar workers of the LA Unified School District, supported by the 30,000 teachers just a few weeks ago, once again, is a uh, representation that the poverty wages of school employees is unacceptable and that our students deserve better and we need to invest in public education for our future. Another emblematic industry that, that I think has kind of been shaped by history in Los Angeles is logistics and, and particularly the, the LA port. I know that there are really tense labor negotiations going on for the LA port workers now, and they're kind of grappling with issues around technological change and globalization. And that actually seems like one of maybe the last bastions of that sort of, kind of old school, traditional organized labor in Los Angeles. And, and it seems to contrast quite sharply with other aspects of the logistics chain in Los Angeles, like whether we're talking about Amazon workers or the port truck drivers. And I was wondering if you could sort of reflect on what that shows us about logistics labor, how it's increasingly performed by the most vulnerable and precarious workers in, uh, in our communities. We've done a lot of work with the port workers. And I do think that it's important to recognize the historic role played by the longshore workers in particular. Uh, this is the union that launched the 1934 general strike. This is a union uh, of Harry Bridges and of a very uh, proud and rich militant tradition of dock workers who understood their collective power. And here in Los Angeles and in Long Beach, uh, the ports are the largest in the country, uh, the fourth largest in the world, and they are a central hub of economic activity that fuels the nation. So the uh, Longshore Workers Union understand their strategic significance and as a consequence are among the highest paid workers within the union sector and by far the highest paid workers at the docks. The nature of corporate power and corporate domination is that they will do everything they can uh, in the race to the bottom to strip hard-won union rights for other workers in the same industry. Amazon has a horrible track record with regard to uh, the race to the bottom and the exploitation and the abuse of the warehouse workers and the inhumane conditions, um, the health and safety violations, the speed-ups, uh, the Amazon drivers and the ubiquitous Amazon trucks you see in every neighborhood in the world are a reflection of the massive economic inequality in the logistics sector. The deregulation of the trucking industry and the uh, uh, horrendous wages paid by uh, corporations to the port truckers who play a critical role in bringing the goods from uh, the dock to communities throughout the country. So yes, uh, we support the ILWU, the longshore workers, and their efforts to maintain good union jobs at good union wages. 
and we need to support the organizing of Amazon workers, the organizing of the port truckers uh, to rebuild strong unions and strong uh, labor standards. The challenge, of course, is that for the longshore industry, as it's been since the 1960s, mechanization is shrinking that sector, you know, the port worker, the unionized port worker sector. Meanwhile, uh, employers have been quite able with the support of various levels of government to uh, lower the labor standards in other parts of the logistics chain. Uh, from using contract workers to drive the trucks to, you know, the, the massive region of warehouses that, uh, that is now part of the Inland Empire. It is going to be one of the big challenges of the labor movement in the next 10 years, 20 years, to organize that logistics sector. And I think we'll see some interesting developments here, uh, both among Amazon worker organizing, but, you know, as UPS goes into their uh, potential strikes in. Is there anything else you wanted to raise about labor in Los Angeles today? I mean, there's so many yeah. other sectors we could have talked about. I was I was going to mention the, the garment workers as well, which also seems like something of an anachronism, maybe in the sense yeah, that- There's still a lot of garment work here. I don't know, LA may be the last city with a, a really robust kind of garment industry and, and one that's organizing as well. So uh, what are some of the labor struggles that, that you're paying attention to now? And, and do you have any forthcoming research or any events coming up in the future that people interested in labor across the country should keep an eye out for? Well, regarding the garment workers, you know, it's, it's again, a story of a long story of employers being able to undermine labor conditions, even as the workers organize valiantly. And one of the key things is that, you know, going back to the 1970s, the garment workers unions had to confront this and confront the changing demographics of their workforce and were among the first to embrace organizing immigrant workers and hiring immigrant workers as organizers and not paying attention to whether people were documented or undocumented. The scale of change in the garment industry is just sort of an overwhelming factor uh, when you have a National Labor Relations Board that isn't really going to stand up for workers. So I do think that, um, you know, recently we've had a big breakthrough with a peace rate law uh, that was championed by Maria Elena Durazo. And, um, there, you know, there's new hope for some organizing to raise labor standards in the industry. Uh, it's, it's just another example of how organizing in the context of the contemporary context, which, you know, for Los Angeles has been like this for, for decades and decades, is, is, is something that takes place beyond the narrow uh, version of labor law that people have in mind of union elections and negotiations. Labor organizing in the city for quite a long time has been a community-wide event. Uh, with unions, allying with community organizations, drawing on the support of community members to leverage their political power, to lean on employers to bring them to the table. That's been the norm for Los Angeles longer probably than it was the norm in other parts of the country. 
And I think for most of the United States uh, looking into the future, that is the way forward for the labor movement. I would add to that that I have tremendous hope and optimism for the future. We see unprecedented organizing taking place throughout California, all across the country. This is reflected in more than 200 Starbucks stores being unionized, fast food workers, Amazon workers, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers organizing. And I think it reflects uh, a tremendous willingness of uh, young workers, workers of color, women workers in particular, who are stepping forward and challenging injustice. Within the University of California, we are very excited to report that we are growing six new labor centers um, throughout the state of California, within the University of California, to advance research, policy, and education around working class issues. For those of you more who are interested in some of the work that we do at the UCLA Labor Center or at the UCLA Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, I would encourage you to check out our website. We have great reports, great activities, great events uh, all the time. So we are very hopeful that the working class is rising in Los Angeles and California and in other parts of the country, and that um, you know there is a new willingness of young workers in particular to uh, join the labor movement and to fight for social and economic justice. That was Kent Wong, the director of the UCLA Labor Center, and Toby Higby, associate director of the UCLA Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. That was a great conversation. I love LA. It's my second favorite city in America after uh, the one I live in now. I was particularly struck, though, by the role of policing of workers, whether around their immigration status or simply they're having the audacity to demand better conditions in setting off the 1992 uprising. I guess I knew that the police assault on justice for janitors happened at around the same time as the assault on Rodney King. But to hear it really put in this timeline in this way really made me think about the rebellion in a different context. The idea that people responded to the video of the police beating King, not because it was shocking and rare, but rather because it was normal, because it was what they already experienced, is really important here. And then, of course, the port workers, the ILWU and Harry Bridges, and the long history of logistics workers' unions and their own struggles with tech. As I was saying earlier in the show, high-tech solutions are only possible because of the generations of labor of workers and the intelligence of those workers. And so we could learn, too, from the ILWU's history of winning concessions around labor time as well as pay, around early retirement, and a share of expanded profits when new tech is introduced. And finally, of course, I'm thinking about the 2019 UTLA strike. I was in Los Angeles for that strike, covering it for the nation, and I recall so many instances of what Toby was talking about, the really intense parental and community support for the teachers and the student support for the teachers. Organizations like Students Deserve, which is a group of mostly high school students who had been organizing their own demands, often around policing in schools and making Black Lives Matter in schools, with support from their teachers. And those demands ended up integrated into the process of bargaining, such that the eventual contract that the teachers won included the demands that the students themselves had made. 
And I remember one particular morning when the rain, because yes, it rained for the first four days of the strike, something very rare in LA, when the rain had subsided a bit and a group of parents at three different schools had organized a human chain along the street that these three different schools were on in about a mile stretch. And I was trying to capture on photo and video the sort of breadth of the thing, the visual display of solidarity, because the people spread out and were all standing with their arms outstretched, sort of fingertip to fingertip for this whole mile with picket signs and wearing red t-shirts. The LAUSD was over 900 square miles. The way you couldn't go anywhere strike week without seeing people in red on a corner with picket signs. I went to a school that was actually named for Harry Bridges, not far from the port of Long Beach. And the ILWU had adopted that school, was joining teachers on the picket lines, sharing their rain gear, and helping to make sure that no one crossed the picket. And it was such a visceral experience of bargaining for the common good and what it can achieve, but also of what decades and decades of really strong labor movement organizing can do, what it really means to be in a union town. And that is all we have time for this week. Thanks for being with us for the past 10 years. And if you're just joining us now, well, welcome to the fun. We have a vast archive available at the Descent Magazine website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, go to everyone at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, Colin Kinneborough, and now Casey Stone for editing and producing us. And most importantly, of course, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, sharing us on whatever social media you're still on, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We would especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new listeners, and we can't have enough of those these days. And special thanks once again to all of you who have supported the show financially over the past 10 years, over at the Descent website or at our Patreon page, patreon.com belabored. Thank you for helping keep us going. It's not easy to produce labor journalism. The bosses don't want to pay very much for the kind of work we do. So every little bit really does help. And as I mentioned earlier, we have some lovely gifts for supporters, including Molly's art and a limited number right now of Work Won't Love You Back tote bags for new subscribers. So you can go once again to patreon.com belabored. And if you want to share your story of working or organizing or not working, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a teacher or a content moderator, a longshore person or a TV writer, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too for as long as Twitter lasts at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.